Hi, I'm Paul Greenberg, author of the New York Times bestseller Four Fish and American Catch. And I'm Nick Mink, co-founder of the direct-to-consumer seafood company Sitka Salmon Shares. And what do we have in common, Paul? We like fish. That's right. And Paul and I have partnered to bring you an eight-episode series called Fish Talk. Each episode, Paul and I will trade off as hosts to take you on a journey from our coast to our kitchens so that we can better understand how fish get to our plates. So, Paul, what should listeners expect from upcoming episodes? Well, Nick, let's face it. For non-fishy people, fish are confusing. They're confusing to cook. They're confusing to clean. What's wild? What's farmed? All these different choices you have to make if you're going to eat fish in a responsible way. So on this podcast, we're going to talk to conservationists, scientists, chefs. At the end of each episode of Fish Talk, you will be a little less confused about fish. I couldn't agree more, Paul. All right, let's dive in. So, Ryan Guy, you know it's Lent now? Sure is. And you know what that means? 40 days until Easter. Try again. Friday fish fries. Bingo! Should we yelp some supper clubs to find the best fish fries? Yeah, I think so and so. Okay, I got Antler Supper Club and Bonduel pulled up here. Nancy from Wausau says my sister from Chicago loves their perch. Keep in mind Nancy's sister's a fib, so she's probably talking about the walleye. This is Nick Mink here, co-host of Fish Talk with Paul Greenberg. Like our friend Charlie Barron's in this clip from the Manitowoc Minute, I'm someone with Midwestern roots, and one of my favorite traditions growing up was the Friday night fish fry. For those not from the region, the Friday night fish fry is this civic ritual where the deity being worshipped is a couple of pieces of really beautiful fried fish. I was so taken by the tradition that in graduate school, my advisor even suggested I ponder a thesis on him. But as it turns out, there's a heck of a lot more to fish and eating fish in the Midwest than just the fish fry. In this episode of Fish Talk, We'll find out a little bit more about what's going on with fish and fish eating in the Midwest, with us paying special attention to the fisheries of the Great Lakes. Paul and me thought we'd begin this episode catching up with our friend and chef, Jeremy Amansky. Growing up in Cleveland, Jeremy's no stranger to Friday night fish fries, or Midwestern fish, or the Great Lakes for that matter. But as a James Beard Award nominee, he's often taken this tradition and Midwestern fish for a few unique spins. All right. This is Nick Mink and Paul Greenberg, and we're here with Fish Talk, and we have a very special guest here today, Jeremy Amansky, all the way from Cleveland, Ohio, a very fishy place. Jeremy, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this? And what's in this sandwich? Oh, man. Oh, that sandwich. It's something else. How's it smell? Pretty good. It smells great. You want to tell us what's in it? Yeah, so that is our gefilte fish sandwich that we make here at Larder Delicatessen and Bakery in Cleveland. It is a pretty traditional gefilte fish as far as that goes. So it is made from carp that we get out of beautiful Lake Erie here. Is that like Asian carp that we hear is invading the Great Lakes or is this like some other carp? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it definitely is. And it's definitely doing its fair share of detrimental action to the Great Lakes ecosystem. So we're always happy to eat it. It's a beautiful sandwich. It's got mine has Swiss cheese on it. It has some sort of like remoulade. I have some dill and a really nice like weedy looking bun. Did I describe that right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's start at the bun. We use spent grain from local breweries in that bun. We also use this Japanese mold known as koji. Koji is responsible for making miso and sake and soy sauce. So we work that into the bread. 
it gives it just really, really nice flavors. There's a little bit of butter and buttermilk in there too, and it just gives it a little bit of cheesy flavor on the end. The gefilte fish itself, we also use the koji mold in there. We grind the carp. We don't even separate out the bloodlines or anything. I also put both the row and the soft row and the livers and hearts in there. Wow, the kitchen sink. Yeah, yeah. The Especially the soft row and the livers make that gefilte fish like a creamy, smooth pate. But you don't even mess with that. You just say, screw it. Let's put the whole thing in the grinder and gefilte comes out the other end. That's it. That's it. You know, we mix some fresh herbs in there and lots of black pepper. So it, it's actually a very slightly adapted version of my grandmother's recipe. Now, are we landsmen? Are you of the Jewish people? We are brothers. Well, I was going to say, the one thing that seems to me not traditional about your gefilte fish sandwich is that it's a sandwich. I never heard about anyone putting <laughs> gefilte on a sandwich. It's really interesting. And we did a lot of research on that because we'll do this gefilte a couple different ways as a sandwich too. Sometimes we just take the raw mix and we do it like a smash burger, hmm. riddle the cheese onto it and put it on the bun. Other times we're breading and frying it like this. And there's actually precedent for that in Great Britain. They don't do like balls or hunks of gefilte fish like you see in, in Europe and here in America. They actually pan fry it. Oh, interesting. And then they'll serve it on toast points or, you know, with crackers or that sort of thing. So we kind of took some inspiration from that. In my opinion, it eats like a really awesome fish sandwich. Before we take our first bite of this amazing looking sandwich, let's back up a little bit and find out more about the issues being faced in the Great Lakes, especially for those who rely on them for their food and for their livelihoods. If you know the fish of the Great Lakes better than my friend, Dr. Titus Eilheimer. Titus is based in Manitowoc, Wisconsin, probably not too far from Charlie Barron's. He spent much of the last decade working on bettering understanding of these fisheries, and we're really excited to have Titus here on Fish Talk. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a fishery specialist with Wisconsin Sea Grant. I've worked on the Great Lakes for about 20 years. At Wisconsin Sea Grant, we're uh, one of 34 different Sea Grant programs, and that's Sea Grant, S-E-A, we do not have any seas in Wisconsin, but we do have the Great Lakes. And from the very beginning of Sea Grant, and there's Sea Grant programs in Alaska, in Maine, all over the place on the coast, and that includes the Great Lakes. So we're one of eight programs here in the Great Lakes that deal with broadly coastal issues. So the Great Lakes have many coastal challenges, just like the ocean coasts have. And a lot of my work focuses on kind of understanding how the how the lake is changing, how the food webs change, and then trying to share that information, pass that on to the stakeholders who make their livings out on the lakes, whether that's charter fishing or recreational fishing or commercial fishing in the Great Lakes. If you had a couple minutes to talk to people about why they should care about the Great Lakes or the importance of the Great Lakes to our seafood system, what would you tell them? There's a long history of as long as people have kind of lived on the coasts of the Great Lakes, and we're talking thousands of years, the fish have always been a really important reason. That's why people are here. The fish is a really a great resource, a great food source historically. And I think that continues today where you may go to a, a local restaurant and find a commercially caught whitefish or perch from the Great Lakes, or you might 
go out on your own and catch some fish yourself and take those home. So sort of this diversity of opportunities, I think, to enjoy some of these fish from the Great Lakes. Oh, that's interesting that you put it like, that's why people probably settled here, whether you were Europeans or Native Americans before them is right. They People came to the Great Lakes and what be, would become the Midwest for fish, right? Yeah, I mean, fish was really an important, like if you imagine looking at the layout of the Great Lakes too, here in Wisconsin, we could actually, like I could get in a boat and without taking my boat out of the water, I could leave from Wisconsin and go all the way to Buffalo, New York. And that was, think back hundreds of years ago when there weren't roads, there weren't railroads. What was the best way to kind of move into the Midwest, deeper into the Midwest? It was the Great Lakes. It was this great transportation network. Fish plays an important part to that because that is feeding people as they were able to kind of expand throughout the region, send that fish back east. I think there's the kind of this long tradition of connecting Great Lakes fish with kind of the larger world. And at the end of the day, that market connection was facilitated by fish. So like specifically, let's talk about the fish of the Great Lakes. What are the four or five, the handful of our most important, both commercially caught, sport or recreationally eaten fish? And I'll start with the commercial side. Lake whitefish, especially for us in kind of the northern Great Lakes, lake whitefish is the species for us in Wisconsin it's like 95% lake whitefish. So that is kind of the backbone of the fishery right now. Yellow perch is still, they're still important as well as walleyes. Can you tell us a little bit about what's sometimes called rough fish or some of these invasive species that are increasingly important commercially and for food in the Great Lakes? Rough fish are, we have like our commercial harvest, our commercial species, our sport fish species, and then rough fish are just sort of these other species that aren't included in those categories. So for us in Wisconsin, it might be something like a burbot, which is also known as a, it's a freshwater cod. It's not necessarily targeted, but it might be caught in the nets by someone fishing for whitefish. So it's sort of this incidental harvest, but it can be kept. That is definitely one of the examples. But in our markets too, we might see things like carp, sort of lower value fish, but also potential food fish. Exciting opportunities there for everyone, I think. Awesome. Well, Titus, thanks for being here with us and sharing your incredible knowledge of Great Lakes fisheries. Before I introduce our next guest, here's a quick word from our sponsors. Experience the real-life struggles of small-scale fishermen in the new documentary, Last Man Fishing. Narrated by best-selling author Mark Bittman, the film explores the growing tensions between corporate interests and small-scale fishermen. Watch it now on iTunes, Apple TV, or YouTube. Learn more at lastmanfishing.com. So we got a sense of what's going on with fish in the Great Lakes today from our first guest, Titus Seilheimer. But the Great Lakes have been through huge upheavals that most Americans don't know about. To get a sense of these changes, I talked to Amber Mae Peterson. Amber is part of a fourth-generation fisher family who are based in Muskegon, Michigan. Her family runs one of the few commercial fishing operations left on the Great Lakes. So, Amber, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, boy. How much time do we got again? <laughs> My name is Amber Mae Peterson. I'm the owner-operator of The Fishmonger's Wife, 
which is located in Muskegon, Michigan, along the western shoreline on Lake Michigan. And I am married to a fourth generation commercial fisherman. There are 13 active state licensed commercial fishermen, and that covers Lake Erie, Saginaw Bay, Lake Huron, Lake Michigan, and Lake Superior. And the one thing I can say hands down, if you want to meet the hardest working people on God's green earth, actually on the water, go find a commercial fishing family, hands down. What are you going out there to harvest? What's the big thing that we're catching in the Great Lakes today? Lake whitefish makes up 91% of our total harvest, and that is the money fish. Okay, okay. What else do you catch? Is it lake trout? Oh, no. Okay. Oh, no. Gosh, no. Why not? Is it off limits? Back in 60s, early 60s, commercial fishing in Michigan went through a massive change. And this is why people don't know about commercial fishing in Michigan anymore. And part of that was we lost rights to harvest lake trout, or we have zero quota, basically. What happened in the 60s? Was it the, I know about overfishing? Is it, was it the lamprey? Was it pollution? All of those things are parts, okay? They are small paragraphs and chapters and what led to ultimately the state's decision to plant salmon and to create a sport fishery. And so, yes, sea lamprey came in and they helped decimate and wipe out lake trout. No denying that. We did not have good science either on the fishing. I mean, we were fishing hard. We were feeding the world. The Great Lakes in Michigan in particular, we were the number one exporter of freshwater fish in the world. Through the 60s? So it's from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And then in the 50s, we started to see the sea lamprey take their toll. Okay, so in the 60s, we were having problems. And what you're saying is at that point, management and fisheries in the Great Lakes, at least in Lake Michigan, really began to shift towards sport caught fish and recreational fishermen. Prior to the 1960s, there was about 2,000, just shy of 2,000 commercial fishermen active in Michigan, upper, lower peninsula, all of the Great Lakes that we touch. And we were a powerhouse perch, walleye, lake trout, whitefish. Carp was also a big exporter for us, right? And so we saw the shift starting with the sea lamprey really targeting the lake trout and wiping out the lake trout population. Once again, there was no good science behind fisheries research either to tell us populations of stocks. So Michigan hired a new fisheries chief and basically his directive was to (laughs) revive the Great Lakes. And that plan was to switch us from a commercial fishery to a recreational leisure fishery, which was fitting the theme of the early 60s, what was going on in the rest of America. Ultimately, in the end, commercial fishing went back to the state's control. And so the state then started rearing and fish hatchery salmon and planting salmon in the Great Lakes to create a sport fishery. And commercial fishermen can't catch these salmon? No, we are, we are absolutely not allowed to touch them. We're not allowed to touch walleye, which is historically a Great Lakes commercial fish. Perch only in Saginaw Bay so that they still have a perch fishery. We're, of course, allowed to take carp, yep. sheephead, all those things that tons and tons of labor into it. If you get 25 cents a pound, you are making good money on them. And there's an increasing number of commercial fishermen are moving away from whitefish and moving into these fish that are based of species because this is what the options are now. Yeah. And you guys haven't considered that? 
oh, sure we have. Of course we have. Like we need to make money. I mean, we have we have mortgages and jobs. I mean, this is our job. The problem is, is when you look at Michigan, there's 13 of us spread out across that area. Distribution is our key challenge, right? So if you bring in 3,000 pounds of a rough fish, because that's about what you want to bring in at 25 cents a pound, where does it go? We made a fish sandwich out of it, out of carp, and it was it was amazingly good. I mean, Nick, I'm all about the underutilized fish movement. Don't get me wrong. I've been spearheading here in Muskegon Burbot, right? World's only freshwater cod. Delicious. It took three years of heavy educational campaigning on my part to my customer base to get them to buy Burbot. And the truth of it is we get, well, why don't you just market your other fish? We would love to help us find that place where we can move large volume and still pay our crew and pay ourselves. Meanwhile, we don't have the five years to invest in that marketing cane. And that's what it's going to take is a five-year educational investment and a shift in how people shop and think. So for the small scale commercial fishermen in the Great Lakes, your biggest challenge is distribution, you're saying? Not even distribution. That is one of them. Everything we do is a challenge. I mean, Michigan has the largest shoreline in the Great Lakes system, right? We have the most shoreline mileage and we've got 13 people. That's like 200 miles between every commercial fisherman. So realistically, what we catch in whitefish, we can sell locally but what doesn't have a popular demand, so anything that's not whitefish, trout, walleye, or perch has to be shipped out. Our shipping line no longer exists in Michigan. Like the trucking company didn't have enough volume anymore. So they run one route on the eastern side of the state. So now you got to find an alternate transport for this rough fish. But on top of that, <laughs> I mean, on top of that, we're just small scale too. Like, we're not mechanicalized. The modifications and the technology on the working end, it, we just we haven't advanced since the 1950s. It's all the same from when we... Yeah. You guys are basically using your same boat that the Petersons have been using for generations. We're using the same style of boat that was used in 1929. <laughs> the only difference we have is the nets are no longer cotton dipped in tar. They are now nylon. Oh my gosh. So if there's misconceptions that consumers have about Great Lakes fish or even small scale commercial fishermen in general, what are they? I mean, the number one misconception we have is that A, we don't exist or we already get to harvest what you're eating in a restaurant. And so, oh, well, this walleye, this is caught by a Michigan fisherman. No, it's coming out of Canada. (laughs) People are walking into those restaurants and they're thinking it's harvested locally, but almost exclusively it's coming from somewhere else. Yeah. With perch and walleye in your mainstream restaurants, I'm very confident to say 99% of that comes out of Canada. And that's hurting you guys, right? Oh, it's just killing us. Also, the other thing that's hurting us is this conception that we can possibly somehow overfish the Great Lakes. Like us 13 commercial fishermen are going to go out there and just decimate the populations. It is not possible. The 13 of us could not physically haul in enough fish with the manpower and the licenses that are left. 
because we're massively regulated. We have a season, we have gear restriction, we have quotas, we have ports. Oh, and the number of licenses. Limited entry. Yeah, limited entry. Our number one hindrance, though, is we don't have diversity. And that's what's really hurting the fish population in long term. If you could go out and catch a few of these salmon and catch a few of these walleye and catch a few of these yellow perch, which are in these bodies of water, but they're allocated to sport fishermen, your lives would be way easier. And maybe eaters would be able to get more local fish on their plates, right? If we were to have access again to lake trout, walleye, and perch, and have small quotas on them, quotas that match the populations, that fish would all pretty much stay locally within our communities where we sail. And the advantage to the community is great. The advantage to us is massive. Whitefish populations are not what they were 15 years ago. We're saying it's because of the lake trout moving in and pushing them out. There's environmental changes going on too. And we're not managing for that. And that's pretty much the only targeted commercial species that you can harvest based on the management that's out there. 100%. Yeah. What do you see the future of Great Lakes fisheries? There is our community. Okay. So all 13 of us. And our goal is to maintain a sustainable small scale commercial fishery. We are not interested in seeing the large ocean vessels come into the Great Lakes and take our place basically. So one ocean vessel can what replace five of us. We, we don't want to see that. We want to see it stay smaller, more controllable. I mean, we're all families, family owned of the 13 of us and generational on top of that. We are truly down to the last of the diehards. Eric and I represent that last generation of individuals that know how to commercially fish on the Great Lakes, find volume, process volume, and get volume to market before it spoils. As a state right now, Michigan is saying, you know, fish, it's only for people who want to go catch their own, really. And we're okay with relying on everybody else to process our fish and import it into us. We're okay with that. Yeah. I mean, the great shame is all these fish fries that people have in the Midwest on Friday night. Not only are they off Icelandic cod and Atlantic cod, they're bringing in fish from China to be able to facilitate this great Midwestern tradition. Right. And yet we have really viable fish that can be commercially harvested for Midwesterners here. And our marketplaces, our government, and even our consumers, because they're just not educated, don't allow that to happen. I'll be honest, whether it is foolish or not, I do believe in our system. (laughs) And I do believe that change is possible. It's just a very long road (laughs) to that change. So the long road, and it ends in the water. So thanks so much, Amber. We really appreciate it. You being here on Fish Talk. As Amber points out so well, what can be really tasty to one eater can be really risky food for another. Few know this better than fishmongers, myself included. So we return to Cleveland to speak with second-generation fishmonger Tom McIntyre. He's the proprietor of Kate's Fish, and we asked him to talk a little bit about what it's like to sell fish in the Midwest. So Tom, tell me a little bit more 
about Kate's Fish and what you guys do and how you've become what one of my friends calls Cleveland's most celebrated fishmonger. My mom started about 20 years ago, and I have been running it for at least a dozen years. And we source seafood directly from uh, fishermen and coastal fisheries. We eliminate middlemen in that sense, and we bring high-quality products to Cleveland and the West Side Market. People traditionally don't think of the Midwest as a place with fish or particularly commercial fisheries. When we think of fish, we think of the coast. But what's up with fish in the Midwest? The people that, that live here are generally familiar with, in Northeast Ohio especially, it's all walleye and yellow perch. That's the high-demand fish. And those are all basically caught from Lake Erie. Oh, yeah. Walleye on the Canadian side commercially, of course, because you cannot commercially fish walleye on the Ohio side of Lake Erie. Yellow perch from both sides. But as far as the Great Lakes as a whole, the Great Lakes, most incredible freshwater resource in the world, is teeming with life. I mean, whitefish up in Lake Superior is viable fishery, gets smoked, gets sold in New York markets, sold all over the place. You've got your carp, your buffalo, your walleyes. We've got yellow perch, white bass white perch, I mean, all of which is commercially viable. Let's talk a little bit about carp because that's, that's a fish that's everywhere. What's the story with the fish in the Great Lakes and what you guys sell? And how does it differ from uh, these more, I guess, what would you call traditional native species like yellow perch and, and walleye? So carp and white buffalo, commonly referred to as trash fish amongst your American yuppie crowd. Wouldn't even consider eating them. Most of our, your perch fishermen, walleye fishermen, they would not even consider eating carp or buffalo. However, buffalo or carp has been farmed all over the world and has been wild in natural freshwater sources all over the world forever. Eastern Europeans, it's a traditional holiday dish. You've got some people that'll smoke it, but most people are using it as a, they can chop it into steaks and then grill or curry fry the steaks. We get a lot of international customers. I mean, our, our fish counter is probably the most culturally diverse place in Cleveland, Ohio on a busy Saturday. I mean, we get everybody from all over. And it's like yuppie white people, they're not buying carp. They're not buying buffalo. They might buy walleye or yellow perch. They're probably going in there to buy salmon, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Squares and rectangles. That's that mean. <laughs> what do you mean by when you say squares and rectangles? All right. So the American, they're conditioned to want skinless, boneless, center cut squares and rectangles. That's what their cookbooks say. That's what their food guys on TV say. That's what their recipes out of magazines say. Squares, center cut skinless if you can. They don't want to see the fish with the head on. They don't want to see it whole. They don't want to know what it looked like when it got processed. They just want that skinless, boneless filet so they can go throw it on the grill and everybody that they're feeding gets the identical portion. If that was our entire client base, we would not have a business. So you're saying there's, I mean, like all food, there's a really big class and ethnic component to our fish choices in an urban area like Cleveland. Most Definitely, like in the world of the fish market, we sell whole fish of all varieties to every single nationality and ethnicity. You come to the West Side Market and you realize there's, there's all these different people and they all eat seafood and they all eat it differently. But they, of course, they want it fresh. So they've come to us for years because that's what we do. Like we process it, we have it, we get it. We are the best at this for a reason. So if there's one thing you want our listeners to know about eating fish or or fisheries from the Great Lakes in the Midwest? Like, what would that one nugget of 
information be? I, I implore people to just like go in, see what looks nice, ask a few questions, and maybe try something new. Try something you've never heard of. Try cooking a whole fish. It's a wonderful experience. And get away from your recipes and your, your, your mindset that needs everything to be a uniform center cut piece of the animal because that's simply not sustainable. We have really good fortune selling lesser fish because it's fresh to people who want something that's cost effective and they can go home and make a really nice dinner with. And maybe it's not grouper, snapper, tuna, salmon, halibut, sea bass, whatever. But it's a wonderful local carp or a local buffalo caught from Lake Erie. I mean, Jeremy, he could do all kinds of different stuff. He's got all these people who are coming in because larder's awesome, eating carp, and they never even thought they would like carp. I mean, (laughs) and that's like the coolest thing ever, man. Will Paul and me be two of those people that Jeremy gets to like carp? Let's head back to the kitchen with Jeremy and Paul to find out. Last I've heard, they've been putting some finishing touches on some fish sandwiches inspired by Midwestern culture and featuring these carp. Oh my gosh. I just took a bite, but that's exactly what I thought was like, this is an epic fish filet. And that's kind of where I was thinking. I was like, this is gefilte fish meets the Midwest. Cause you know, the Midwest, <laughs> what do we want to do? We want to put some mayo on it. We want to put some cheese on it and we want to slap it in between two buns. Well, and we want it fried. And we want it fried and we got all those things. So this is the ultimate hybrid cuisine. When you source Great Lakes fish, Jeremy, how do you decide whether you're going to use one of those more iconic species like whitefish or lake trout or one of these relatively newcomers like carp? I kind of want to back your question up just a sec too, because this notion that carp is a gross fish or muddy or any of this stuff is just absolutely ridiculous. It is the most commonly eaten freshwater fish in the whole world. It's not a bad fish. It tastes delicious. And because we're having problems with it, we can present a creative solution that everybody enjoys for controlling it and getting rid of it. And that's having a great meal. Now, hold on. This is getting unfair yet because I haven't had a chance to take a bite of my sandwich. So let me do that. But first of all, I want to point out that technically I strive to be vegan plus fish. Now, I know this bun is not vegan. I'm sure there's some egg in that fish, but I try to be not an oppressively vegan plus fish person. So I'm going to, (laughs) I'm going to drop my oppression, but I'm not putting the cheese on the sandwich. And that's okay. And that's okay. I want to, cause you know, some chefs get all chefy on you and they're like, Oh no, no, without cheese, it's not going to be complete, but I'm just going to do it. I do have some cocktail sauce. Should I put the cocktail sauce on or no? What do you think? Oh yeah. yeah. You're looking for a little cocktail. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the cocktail would totally work on that. I'm going to put a little cocktail. Hold on just a little. And I'm going to slap that bun on, and I'm going to take a bite. Let's see. That's an excellent sandwich. Thank you. It's Midwest meets old world. (laughs) What's rewarding and what's challenging about being one of the leading chefs in the Midwest and really focusing on sourcing fish from the Great Lakes? It's an interesting thing too, because I lived in New York City for a long time and living, living there, you know, in New York Harbor, I could have access to any item of seafood from anywhere in the world, almost at any time. There's very, very heavy seafood culture in New York City and going up throughout New England, even some of the inland places, right? It's still seafood focused. Interestingly enough, through the Great Lakes Belt, what we used to call the Rust Belt, but there's a lot of rebirth happening now. So we, we call it the Great Lakes Belt. 
there is fantastic seafood culture here. And it's because we are literally on the edge of the largest freshwater resource in the world. Hmm. And it has a diverse bioflora in it. So many different species of fish. It's just fantastic. We don't look at it as a limitation being here. I don't look and say, oh, crap, I can't get salmon. Because we made a decision to only source things out of the Great Lakes and our local river systems. Interestingly enough, and I think you guys will appreciate this, I can't tell you as a chef how many times I hear from people, I don't like fishy fish, but I love salmon. (laughs) To me, salmon is one of the fishier fish. That's what's so funny. It's like, I mean, outside of mackerel, is there really anything that's much fishier than salmon? A sockeye from Bristol Bay is one of the most beautiful but pungent and bold fish that there is. And (laughs) nothing like this amazing Actually, incredible, delicate, and very easy to eat piece of carp, which it almost flips that story on its head, right? To me, this fish really isn't fishy. It's really mild. It's really delicate. And to think it's an invasive species that most people and most Midwesterners would be incredibly uncomfortable eating if it was presented to them. And actually, if they were told that this incredible sandwich was made out of carp. Thanks for joining Paul Greenberg and I on Fish Talk this week, where we learn that the Midwest has an abundance of fish and is much more than a Friday night fish fry. See you next time. Hey, Paul here with a fish tip. You don't really need to buy an expensive vacuum packer to get great frozen fish. If you got some fish that you're worried is going to go bad, what you do is put in a Ziploc bag, keep just a little corner of that Ziploc open, submerge the whole thing in a pot of cold water. That'll force the air out. Then close that Ziploc right at the corner and you've got yourself a vacuum sealed. Now throw it in the freezer and it'll be good to go next time you want to cook fish. How much do you know about the last fish you ate? Sitka Salmon Shares delivers responsibly sourced wild Alaska seafood to your doorstep. As a member, you'll receive a monthly share of delectable seafood, including favorites like halibut and coho salmon. And you'll be connected to the story behind your fish. Sitka Salmon Shares model ensures superior quality fish and traceability to the source, from the ocean to your plate. Meet your fishermen, browse recipes, and shop wild-caught Alaska seafood at SitkaSalmonShares.com. Guaranteed this wild fish will be the best you've ever cooked at home or your money back.